All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 16 to 19. All right, so today I'm closing up my sermon series on wisdom with work. Wisdom with work. This is going to be the last sermon I preach for the entire year. I believe next week we have a guest speaker coming. Um, Powerful man of God. I believe it's Pastor Marcus, right? It is Pastor Marcus. It's scheduled for next week, yeah. He'll be coming preach. Um, so today's my last sermon of the year. And it's the fifth and last sermon in this Wisdom with Work series. Now we learned over this sermon series that God is a God of work. That in God's eyes, there is no difference between a sacred or secular call. You know, in the traditional church, many people believe that Full-time ministry is a sacred call, but working for a bank is a secular call. That being a missionary is a sacred call, but washing cars and being a janitor is a secular call. But we, we, uh, we got a revelation from the reformers that there is no such thing as this kind of dichotomy or separation. Because every call that comes from God is sacred. It has value. Uh, I also talked about how every assignment has value, even the most mundane assignments, as we saw in the life of Rebecca, as she was going about being her best, being a servant, doing this mundane manual labor work. God used that to give her breakthrough and and into her destiny and to marrying Isaac. Uh, I talked about how uh, work is not a curse. God did not uh, give us work. As something to do that he doesn't want to do. But we see from the Genesis account that God is a God who worked and created the world. He continues to work and care for the world. And then he commissioned man to do work as his representatives. To unlock the potential of this earth. God is a God who did work. Who continues to work. And he's the one who has commissioned us. To do work while on this earth. There's a design that God has put upon work for, for us to receive and to really be his representatives. I also talked about the dignity of work last week. How we ought to pursue work not for social status or money, but for calling. There's many young people today, they pursue careers and jobs and work that have nothing to do with their passion and giftings. And a big drive for why they pursue that work it's so that they can have a higher standard of living. Even though they, have, they, they want nothing to do with medicine, they'll pursue the pre-med route by default. This is like 99% of all Asian American young people, right? They'll, they'll go the pre-med route. And why do parents even push them to go that pre-med route? Because it, has, it affords a higher social status. But we talked about how in the eyes of God, being a doctor has dignity as much as a bellboy has dignity. 
And that we as Christians, of all people who believe the gospel, we have to believe that in Christ, there is no Jew or, or Greek, there is no slave or free, but Christ is in all and through all. Something like that. It was the Colossians verse, right? As people who believe the gospel, we cannot contribute to the social divide between white collar and blue collar. And if God decides to write our life story in such a way where one day we're a millionaire investment banker and then the recession hits. And in order to pay the bills, in order to uh, be productive, you have to take up a job at McDonald's that as Christians, that should not bother us. It should not devastate us because our worth and value does not come from the type of work we do or the kind of work we do. It comes from the kind of God who calls us to do it. So God can very much call us to be an investment banker one day. And then if he so pleases, can cause us, call us to work at McDonald's the next day. But we as Christians, we ought to embrace whatever assignment and calling God gives us through our, through our various seasons. And I mentioned last week a famous football player called Kurt Warner. And how he had to work at a grocery store making five fifty an hour, stocking the shelves. And he did that while trying to pursue a career in the NFL. And he did not look at that grocery job and get all depressed and discouraged. No, he took on that job with a humble heart. Knowing that that's not where he was going to stay. He felt like he was destined for more. He was called to play football. And eventually the doors opened for him to play for Arena Football League. Which is, you know, very, for NFL players, that's something you don't even think of doing. Arena Football League is just something you look down upon. But he was humble enough to take on a gig at the Arena Football League. And eventually that opened up the doors for him to go back and try out for the NFL. And then on his first season in the NFL, guess what he did? He won the Super Bowl and broke all of these uh, quarterback uh, stats and ra ratings. He was one of the um, greatest you know, quarterbacks to ever kind of jump onto the NFL scene. And uh, his story, I mentioned it because we as Christians, we need to be willing to embrace every assignment, every work that God calls us to in the various seasons he may walk us through. You may want to go on and do grand things. But the path to that greatness may be paved with humility and servanthood. In fact, that is what the Bible teaches us. Jesus said, you know how the uh, Romans and the, all these secular leaders, they rule over you? But greatness among you will not be defined that way. Jesus taught his disciples, whoever wants to be great amongst you must be the least. Whoever wants to be the greatest among you, you must be servant to all. And let me show you the way. And he got down and he washed his disciples' feet. The path to greatness in the kingdom of God is always servanthood. And so, you know, that servanthood could mean you working at a McDonald's for a season. That's the only best example I can think of. But, you know, obviously it could mean a lot of different implications for your different contexts. But never be so proud that you're not willing to take on different assignments through different seasons. Anyway, so I mean, we, we've been, I've been teaching a lot, I'm unpacking a lot, and giving you this very positive view of work. Work has value, work has dignity. All kinds of work has dignity. So, 
As young people, you might have gotten excited and said, yeah, let me go back to my classroom and study harder. Let me go back to my workplaces and work with more diligence, work with greater joy. Let me delight in the work I'm doing. You know, let me teach these Hagwon kids to step back and just delight in it. You know, and you might have gone back and done that. And was hit with immense discouragement. Why? Because you put in more joy. You put in more heart to prepare that curriculum, to prepare that class. And you taught it. And the kids, they're still running around, not listening, (laughs) disrespecting you. And you were like, why is my job so futile? Why is... This week, I'm coming to my boss with even a greater heart to serve this company. Why is my boss being harder on me this week? Why are my coworkers filled with envy all of a sudden? Why are they turning against me, gossiping about me? And you might have adopted this renewed joy and positivity toward work and then gone back to work and, and got hit with immense disillusionment and frustration. And so we need to balance out the messages that have already been preached with, uh, with this very important message today. Okay? And so today, the message is called The Effects of Sin on Work. The Effects of Sin on Work. Work is good. That's how God designed it. But often our experience of work is not always so good. Why? Because the world that we live in is fallen. Let's look at Genesis 3, verses 16 to 19. I'm going to read it in the ESV. This is after Adam and Eve sins against God. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he will he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which, if, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for from for you are dust and to dust you shall return the world that we live in today is a world that is fallen it is filled with brokenness sickness fatigue injustice disaster murder and all kinds of death The world's religions have different explanations for why the world is the way it is. For example, the Asians, they have the yin-yang concept. The reason the world has all this fallenness and injustice is because there is a constant and equal fight between good and evil, light and darkness. And if that is kept in balance, the world is a good place. But when it goes out of balance, there is war and strife. You know, the yin-yang concept. Uh... Different religions of the world have different explanations, but the Bible makes it very plain why the world is fallen and why the world is the way it is. And it explains that sin 
is the ultimate reason why the world is the way it is. Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion against God and the resulting alienation from God is what has contributed to making the world the fallen world that we live in. And the effects of this fall are experienced most prominently in your work assignments. It doesn't just affect our relationships. doesn't just affect the religions of the world. It affects our work. Our work. The fall, the sin of man affects work. Now, God's original design was that work will be beautiful. It will be a joy. It will be a glorious use of our gifts and our passions to unlock the potential of this world. To go and subdue this world and build cities and cultures and music and the arts and and, and skyscrapers. I mean, it, this is God's original design is that we would use our gifts and talents to unlock the world's potential. But because of man's sin, it is now cursed. We must have a sound understanding of how sin affects work. If we are going to properly deal with sin's effects and stay balanced in how to do the work we do and stay balanced in our approach toward our work assignments. So in Genesis 2.17 here, earlier, God tells Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree of the, good, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. Uh, when Adam and Eve ate of this fruit from this tree, did they die? Well, they didn't all of a sudden slump over and die, right? But, you know, what, what was special about this tree? Was it a poisonous tree that God was trying to warn them not to eat of? Well, it, it, it's hard to come to any speculation or conclusion on if the tree had any special properties. But the principle of what God was doing here was very simple. He said, look, you can eat of anything in this garden. Go and subdue the earth, work the earth, but do me one favor. Do not eat of this one tree. I know you don't understand. I'm not going to give you an explanation. I just want you to obey me because you put my, your relationship with me first. Because you trust my word. Do not eat of this tree. So it was a very simple command. And it served as a test for mankind. But what did Adam and Eve go and do? All right, they were deceived by the serpent. And then the, the woman ate it, gave it to his, her husband. Husband didn't ask any questions, ate it as well. And they both fell into sin. Now, this command here to not eat of this tree, uh, Tim Keller says that it is the essence of all the biblical commandments that are revealed later to the nation of Israel. And where God simply says, do not Lie to each other. Do not steal from each other. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Why, God? God doesn't give the full explanation always. He just says, simply because I am and you are my people. Just because I said so, I want you to obey these commands. 
Tim Keller said it like this. He says, it was an opportunity for the human race to voluntarily make our relationship with God the primary value of our lives and to obey his word simply because it was his due. You know, the, uh, the serpent lies to Adam and Eve and says, if you eat of this tree, you're going to be like God. Be like God. And a lot of different people interpret that differently. They say, oh, Satan was lying, you know. You know, or Satan was lying by telling them they will be like God, but the truth was they were already like God because they were created in God's image. And so there's all these different explanations, right, for how to interpret that verse. But, you know, Satan, Satan is very sly. And he's not telling a complete deception here. You know, just like the Genesis account shows us, Adam and Eve was created in the image of God. He was telling a half-truth. He was saying, pretty much, if you eat of this... You're going to be like God. You see, God's holding out on you. God's got all this fun, all this joy and delight that he's holding out on you. And if you will be like God, you get to access all that. And so Satan deceives them into eating this tree. And what happens is Adam and Eve, they, when they eat of this tree, they do become like God. But it's in a very distorted way. There is, a, there is a good way in which we mirror the image of God. And then there are also destructive ways in which we can reflect the image of God. And when Adam and Eve ate of this tree, they began to put themselves in the place of supreme authority. And where God, until that, that point, he determined what's right or wrong. They began to sit in the seat of authority and determine what's right or wrong. To know between good and evil. And when man put themselves in that place of authority, it resulted in destruction and death for the entire human race. And not only the human race, but the whole earth. Because the original design of God was that man would know God, serve God, and love God. And if we were faithful to that original design, the world would be a prosperous and beautiful place. But when we take the driver's seat... Because we want to be the judge of what's good and evil. That's when everything begins to head in the wrong direction. And death and decay has its effect on the entire world. So Adam and Eve, when they ate of this fruit, they didn't immediately die. But it did happen eventually. You know, sin always leads to death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And we see death today in every, every area of life. Be it spiritual, physical, social, cultural, psychological, eternal. There's death everywhere as a result of man's sin. Everybody with me? Say amen. amen. I like told you to say amen even if you're not with me. But yeah, just trying to get y'all to be on the same page. Um, in Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they also experienced internal shame. Because earlier in Genesis, it says that they were naked and unashamed. But immediately after they sinned, they began to uh, hide and get cover. Not only from God, but from each other. And so whereas before, Adam would say over his wife, you are beautiful. You know, I love you. I, I, I feel so free to be vulnerable before you. But after they sinned, what happened? There's immediate alienation between Adam and Eve. How do we know this? 
You look at the interview that God has with Adam and Eve after they've sinned. Right? The God doesn't come with a big old stick. Oh, I know what you did. God just comes and just real chill. Like, what is this you've done? What happened here? Right? And what, what does Adam do? Immediately first he, he complains. He does two things. He complains and he says, look, everything was good until this woman that you created. She come around. Look what she's done. Right? He starts to complain about this, this internal unhappiness that it wasn't there before. And not only complains, but he blames the woman. Not only blames the woman, but essentially, what does he do? He's blaming God. Because look, it's your fault. Because you created the woman, not my idea. And the woman you put me with tempted me and caused me to sin. Immediately, there is social death. Alienation between husband and wife. And, uh, you know, God says, all right, well, Eve, what, what is this? What happened? And Eve immediately blames the serpent. Now, the truth of what happened was they were guilty. They sinned against God. They did something that God clearly directly told them not to do. But neither of them were willing to admit that guilt. They deflected it. They blamed each other. You know, after the fall, there was something terribly wrong. And that's why Adam and Eve felt that internal shame. But they could not admit or identify it. And you know, that same pattern continues today. You know, many people today, they experience the same internal shame, the same restlessness. And it manifests in different forms. You know, some people, they live their lives striving to prove themselves, living with a chip on their shoulder, striving out of guilt to get people to accept them. Uh, There are other people that they just isolate themselves. They assert their independence, very rebellious, anti-authority, because they have this restlessness inside. Other people, they're very people-pleasers. They just want to please you. They comply to everything. They say yes to everything. Because of this internal restlessness, they look for acceptance in these ways. And for all of us today, it's difficult for us to identify why we are doing these things. Why are we driven in these ways? And the Bible continually points to Genesis and says it is sin which is causing this alienation, this internal shame. This restlessness that we all struggle with today. So the Genesis account here is rich with revelation of why we find the two great tasks of life to be so difficult. The two great tasks of life is love and work. Love and work. Love, relationships with your family, friends, marriage and work. Why do we find love and work to be so difficult? And the Bible explains it's because what Adam and Eve did is not an isolated personal incident, but it was a sin that had catastrophic results for the entire human race. That is what the Bible is continually insisting through this Genesis account. Now, uh, look at Genesis 3.16 again. 
Look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of this tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Uh, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Here in this two verses, work uh, and marriage are very tied closely together in this curse uh, that God pronounces over uh, sin. Both childbearing and farming is now called painful labor, right? I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And then in verse 17, uh, in pain you shall eat of the uh, ground all the days of your life. So raising a family and doing your job, doing your work, it's described as now have being full of pain. Now, is that accurate for some of you in your experience? Has anyone experienced a pain-free, joy-filled, overflowing marriage? Has anyone experienced a job that is pain-free and only overflowing with joy and fulfillment? You know, you can look at celebrity couples and look at their Instagram photos and think, oh, they have the best marriage in the world. What happens to a lot of these celebrity couples? They divorce within a couple of months, a couple of years. You know, it, it contributes to this disillusionment that young people have toward marriage these days. Love and marriage, love and work are tied closely together in these verses. And God says, because of your sin, both will now be filled with pain. So work, even when it bears fruit, is destined to be filled with pain and frustration. Now, this might sound very fatalistic, but we need to understand what the Bible is trying to teach us here. Tim Keller says it like this. Work itself is not a curse, but it now lies with all the other aspects of human life that are under the curse of sin. So God's original design, work is not a curse. That's that's what the Greeks thought, but Genesis doesn't teach that. Work is not a curse. But work, like everything else, has to suffer the effects of the curse on uh, uh, the sin's effects Curses, yeah, uh, the effects of sin. Work, like everything else, has to suffer the effects of sin. Uh, And so here, in verse 17, it talks about, uh, verse 18, it talks about thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Now, when you plant a garden, what's the last thing you want to see? Weeds and thorns and thistles. I don't even know what thorns and thistles are, but they're just bad, all right? Bad plants when you're trying to get some, get some tomatoes and apples. This is not the last thing you want to see. Now here, uh, gardening represents all the different kinds of human labor and work that there is under the sun. And this is a revelation that God is saying from now on, when man, you do your work, it's going to be marked with frustration. With thorns and thistles. Because thorns and thistles doesn't necessarily destroy the garden. But it sure makes it hard to do the gardening, right? It makes it hard to do that work. 
That through our work and our career, we're going to change the world. This is a very common psyche, common mindset among the young generation today. You see it in Google. You see it in all the uh, multinational companies. A lot of them are changing their uh, work vision to include philanthropy, include uh, changing the world. And I think it's a very good movement. It's a good thing. But there is a certain idealism there. An over-idealism, if you will. A naivety, if you will. Of people who think, young generation who thinks, when I start working at the job, my dream job, I'm going to change the world. And the Bible offers some sobering tension in response to that kind of outlook. You know, you thought that all this time through my first four sermons, I was going to... Yeah, end it with, you guys are going to go and change the world. Let me pray for you right now. I bless you. Go forth and change the world. All oh, you're going to be millionaires and all of you guys are going to change this city. You're going to change this nation. You thought that's how I was going to end the sermon, right? Now, if the Bible wanted me to end the sermon that way, I'd be more than happy to. Very positive. But the Bible does not teach us that. So we got to have a certain kind of optimism, but it must be held in tension with what the Bible actually says, what the Bible actually teaches. And what does the Bible teach? It teaches that sin's effects on work are catastrophic, it's disastrous, it's it's strong. And so be fully aware of its effects as you do the work you do. Work, a lot of times, because of sin... It's fruitless. And what do we mean by fruitless? Tim Keller says it like this. We mean that in all our work, we will be able to envision far more than we can accomplish. Both because of a lack of ability and because of resistance in the environment around us. The experience of work will include pain, conflict, envy, and fatigue. And not all of our goals will be met. But even during times when you are satisfied with the quality of your work, you may be bitterly disappointed with the results. What's Tim Keller saying here? He's saying that when you go out, you do your little job, you do your work, and you go out with this heart to change the world. As you go out and actually do the work, beware. Because people are going to blackmail you. People are going to gossip about you. They're going to cheat they're going, to do the, the, they're going to do illegal things while you do the legal way. People uh, are going to use you. You know, oh, I, I, have, I got this theology of work sermon series from my, my pastor. I'm here to serve with joy. I'll do anything. And they, they just use you. And at the end, you get laid off. Uh, recession hits. You know, oh, my company, my startup, we're about to go to IPO. And then recession hits a month before the IPO. And at the same time, back your parents' a home gets flooded out in Kansas. Uh, 
Or you have this incredible talent in programming. You have this incredible talent in music, in acting. Or you have absolutely no talent in self-promotion. So nobody ever discovers who you are. You know, there are amazing composers who died undiscovered. And really, they didn't get to enjoy any of the fruits of their work. Really, they were discovered like decades after they were dead. There's so many tragic stories like that. Work a lot of times can seem very fruitless. Your aspirations can get thwarted by other people, by a fallen world, a wicked world who's out not to really help you, but is out to get you. Other times, your ambitions, your aspirations, your calling can be thwarted, not by others, but by yourself. Self-inflicted wounds, self-inflicted thwarting because of your laziness, lack of discipline. Because you couldn't handle an interpersonal conflict in a healthy way. You close yourself off from doors and opportunities that could have taken you somewhere. You know, if I had to tell, if I had to put a title to my life story. And this wouldn't summarize my entire life, but it would summarize different chapters of my life. You know. A title I would use for my book, my biography, would be The Man Who Continually Shoots Himself in the Foot. Because <laughs> let me tell you, I am only here by the grace of God. I am only in this leadership position. And, and my church leaders know, right? Because I make a lot of mistakes. I'm not a very polished leader. So I'm very, a lot of times very bewildered why God continues to use me. Why he insists that I be in this leadership position. It really is by the grace and call of God that, and favor of God that I'm here. But all my life, I, am, I'm not, I don't have a good record. Whenever I've been in a leadership position, I've shot myself in the foot. For example, I'll tell you a sh- quick story. I was like a junior in high school. And at that time, I was the high school youth group president at my church. Okay, my, my youth group wasn't that big. It was like 20 kids, all right? But I was a youth group president. And so all the other youth, they looked up to me. And so my pastor would always say, hey, hey, Christian, you got to behave a little better. Hey, when you come to Friday night uh, fellowship, you got to have a smile on your face. Because every time you come in angry, it just sets the whole mood off. And no one can, wants to praise God. And you know, it's just, look, can you just be a little bit more exemplary? And I remember just telling my pastor, well, I don't care. I don't care what people think. I didn't ask for this leadership position. And my pastor would be like, Christian. God has chosen you. He's called you. You have influence. You got to learn how to steward that. And I thought, I don't care. And I was just, I was just so like reckless and, and, you know, like that. And then one time I got into a little scuffle with one of the, uh, the, the praise leader. You know, I was a youth group president. He was a praise leader. And uh, I, I was, I liked this other girl in the youth group. And we're in the parking lot and we're just playing around. And he's a lot bigger and, uh, and older than me. And so he gets me in some kind of wrestling move. And so, I, you know, I, I, I knew how to wrestle. So I was trying to wrestle him down. But in the process, he was so much heavier than me. He, like, sat on me and my face, like, 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 like got scratched up on the concrete. And so, you know, I come up and I'm all, I'm all bleeding and I'm all, like, angry. And, you know, I start like, pushing him and we start getting into this little scuffle in front of every youth group kid in the parking lot. 
And people are like, hey, Chris, come on, you're the president. You know, you're, you're better than that. I'm, I don't care. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and got this big scuffle. Everyone breaks us up. And this is not the, the best part of the story. I proceed into the bathroom filled with rage and anger because, you know, I grew up, you know, getting into all these fist fights on, on the streets of Philadelphia. And so it was a very difficult part of me to put to death. And so I'm in there looking at the mirror and I'm just like, ah, so filled with anger. And I decide to punch the wall. And it was, it was this, you know, it was this white church that the Korean church was borrowing. And I think we're borrowing it for free. They were doing it as a service, a favor. And I just, it was just a plaster wall. I just punched right through it. And I was like, wow. And then I looked at the hole and I was like, oh, stupid. That was really dumb. And I came out of the bathroom and a church elder went in next. And he was like, you know where? You know where? And I and I and I and I and I was hanging my head in shame. You know, I felt like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? And I just like try to cover up. And then they found out it was a youth group president. And everyone was very disappointed. My mom was very disappointed. And, I, and it's such so, so stupid, right? Um, but God still put me in leadership positions, <laughs> despite many, many incidents just like that. <laughs> so even when I was in college with Campus Crusade, I made, I made a lot of stupid decisions. I did a lot of stupid things in front of people, you know, lose my cool, uh, say stupid things in front of girls, just offend. I would offend like the entire, you know, like NYU, uh, KCCC community. You know, I used to be the uh, Campus Crusade president at NYU during my junior and senior year. So I had two years to mess up, right? <laughs> but every time I do the announcements, I do them too long. And then, and then every other week, I would offend, like, everybody. Like, I would offend either the women or I offend the men or I offend them both. <laughs> and my staff would take me aside and would say, stop shooting yourself in the foot. Just, just say half the things you say and you'll be a great leader. Anyway, when I served in these leadership positions, I had these big visions and dreams of seeing ministries rise, raised up. I knew that God had more. But a lot of times, I thwarted my own destiny by shooting myself in the foot with this foolish, foolishness. And, you know, sometimes I, I say careless things still today, right? You know, at leadership meetings, even on my, during my sermons, I might say, you know, like, like our church, I think our church should be at a thousand right now. But the reason we're not at a thousand is because I've driven away 800 people <laughs> over the last six years. I mean, I've, that's how many visitors have come through. And so many people, get, they cry during worship. Yes, yes. I want to be at this church. I want to be at this church. And then listen to the sermon. I'm out. <laughs> Why did the pastor say that one thing? You know, and, and I just, I'm offensive. Anyway, uh, the reason I mentioned that is because work a lot of times is fruitless while we're on this earth because of the effects of sin. These are the thorns that God talked about. Unfortunately, sometimes you are that thorn. <laughs> and you cause unnecessary alienation from the people that are assigned to work with you because you're being too sensitive or you're too careless or impatient. You know, um, being the pastor of New Philly, I would like to humbly admit that it has been very fulfilling. It's been incredibly fulfilling. 
very joyful. Aaron and I, when, when we have Sabbath delight moments and we talk about the fruit of the church, I mean, there's times where we talk about all the pastoral foolishness we got to deal with among the members of the church. Those conversations don't move toward Thanksgiving so much. We, we usually pray and then just try to go to sleep. But other times when we take the time to delight over what God's doing in our community, the good things he's doing, I mean, our hearts are just filled with so much Thanksgiving. We feel so much fulfillment. And truly, it is the favor and grace of God that has brought our church to where we are today. You know, I took over a temporary part-time position. It was a volunteer position. They asked me to take over as the lead pastor when Pastor Sam Epen left back in 2008. It was supposed to be a temporary gig. And so I said, all right, I'll just do it on the side. I'll help out until we find somebody new. And who knew that from 2008, it would move toward a full-time position? And who knew a year later, we would do a church plan in Itaewon? And who knew a year later we would do a prayer tabernacle? And then a year later we do another church plan in Busan. And then two years later we do a church plan in Sydney. And then there's these five, and then a church split this year. And now we have these five communities that are all distinct, yet carrying this very powerful kingdom DNA. So many lives being transformed and healed. I understand so many also being driven out of attendance. But the ones that are, have, a, have a thick enough skin to stay... Man, they get blessed. They get transformed. And so when we think about those things, it's incredibly fulfilling, the work that we've been called to do. And we're very thankful to God that we get to do this job. But even in the midst of that, we long and we envision so much more. And there is a frustration that we feel. A gravity, an inertia that we feel like we've got to move. And that's, that's the challenge of any leader. You got to get people to move, right? You cast a vision and people still doesn't want, they don't want to move. You got to influence them to want to do it. And so there are frustrations. There are different challenges. There are interpersonal things, not only within the church, but across churches. You know, we have dedicated people in America that go around and they insist that New Philly is a cult. They are dedicated to doing that. When I heard about a guy in New York doing this, I felt incredible flattery. <laughs> that he felt like our church was that influential. <laughs> I mean, I were influential. I don't know if we're that influential. That he has to go around different retreats telling people that New Philly is a cult. And with no doctrinal basis, of course. It's always just like little small things like, we had this thing called the Naomi Initiative, where we encouraged the women to ask the guys out, and then the guys had to oblige and go on a date. Now, the guys after that, they had to continue it if they were interested or not, right? But it wasn't like, like you know, this is forbidden in Scripture. You shall, never, you shall never have a woman ask a guy out. Like, there's no, like, doctrinal basis for calling us a cult based on something like a church ministry activity like Naomi Initiative. You know? But, I mean, people have... Anyway, there's completely no doctrinal basis because if they study my theology, they will find that my theology is very sound. It's very, very comprehensive. But, you know, like we've, we face that kind of opposition even from across different uh, church, evangelical churches. Uh, we have very dedicated people in Virginia also, also that are very anti-New Philly. And I just want to shout out to Virginia today. Thank you for your commitment to oppose us. 
Because that opposition will actually work for our good sometimes. God has used in sailboats, it is the resistance that causes the sailboats to go faster. And, you know, and I think, you know, if you think that a perfect church is free of all kinds of accusation, you're wrong. Because Jesus had the perfect ministry. And he still faced all kinds of false accusation. It takes a discerning eye to see if an accusation is true, if it has substance. We should not be swept up with a group mentality, a group witch hunt frenzy whenever somebody accuses some ministry of being a cult. Even if it is a cult, investigate before you start to say, that is a cult. And by the way, there are cults. So investigate and then say, that is a cult. Stay away. But we should not jump on the bandwagon of all this witchcraft frenzy. It's like the Salem witch hunts from the American history, you know? All right. There are thorns. There are thorns. Now, uh, Tim Keller pointed out something interesting, that in his parents' generation, they lived through two world wars, and so their view of work was very low, much lower than the one taught in the Bible. And it makes sense. As uh, many of us here are Korean-Americans Korean or Koreans, you know that our parents' generation lived through one war, and our grandparents' generation lived through the Japanese occupation and the Korean War. And what comes out of that? It's the survival mentality. Meaning, you any job will do as long as it can pay the bills and put food on the table. What's the most important thing? Is that we eat. In Korean culture, how do you say, how are you? Right? Did you eat something today? And, and when I first moved to Korea, I kept answering people like, no... You know, or cereal, and I just tell them what I ate, and they would look at me with bewilderment. Like, why are you going into detail about your meal and just asking you how you are doing? But it's it's a very ingrained in Korean culture because it's a war, post-war generation that raised us. And so Tim Keller talks about how his parents' generation and his generation. They have a very low view toward work. It's just like, you know, as long as you can pay the bills, it's, you know, just get any old job, you know, that's what's important. And it's much lower than the one that's taught in the Bible. But he also pointed out that his children's generation, the one that, you know, represent mostly here, the young generation, we have a naive utopian view toward work where we insist, I will not do work Unless it changes the world. I will not do work unless it perfectly fits my gifts and passions. I refuse to take a job that does not contribute to the end of human trafficking tomorrow. (laughs) You know, like, it's this very utopian view toward work. And Tim Keller says the older generation will probably say to the younger generation, you are being self-indulgent. And so... There's this dichotomy right now, this bipolarism toward work in our generation. And uh, I want to point out the difference between idealism and cynicism. Idealism and cynicism, all right? Idealism says, through my work, I'm going to change things. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to accomplish something new. I'm going to bring justice to the world. That's idealism. Cynicism says, nothing really changes. So don't get your hopes up. Do whatever it takes to make a living, 
Don't let yourself care too much and get out of it whenever you can. Idealism and cynicism toward work. As Christians, what should be our mindset? Well, with Jesus at my side, through his strength, I can do all things. With the anointing of the Holy Spirit, I can end human trafficking next year. I know it. Do we embrace idealism? Or do we embrace cynicism? Jesus is going to return. This wicked world ain't going to repent. Your company, we might get a little better for two years. Watch that third year. Where are we supposed to land? And I believe that Genesis reveals where we ought to land. Look at Genesis 3.18 again. It says, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. It's interesting. God says thorns and thistles. But you're going to eat the the, the plants. You're going to eat the fruit of the field. It's going to be frustrating. But at the end of the day, you're going to still eat. You're going to get some good mangoes. Some good watermelon. Going to have to cut up your fingers a little bit trying to get to them. But you'll get the fruit. You get the fruit, the fruit. So what's, what's interesting here in this revelation is that God talks about both thorns and food. There's going to be frustration. There's also going to be fulfillment. It may not be fulfillment at this vision that you can have for yourself in your, in your heart. This grand vision. You don't even know how you got that grand vision, but you feel like that grand vision is something real. Something that you, you want to believe in. And when you live your life and do your work, you may not see that grand vision fulfilled, but you will experience some fulfillment. You're going to experience food. And on your way to pursuing that, you're also going to, you're also going to experience thorns. People are going to backstab you. People are going to be two-faced. Recessions are going to hit. Calamity may come. Wars may break out. There's going to be frustration, but there will also be fulfillment. So what the Genesis account here is teaching us is that work will still bear some fruit, though it will always be short of the promise that you have in your heart of a better day, a better society, a more fulfilling work assignment. Maybe you are a music composer. And you have this grand symphony in your heart. And it's your desire to write it down and get people to perform it. And you're just like, I know it's there. It's there. I hear it. I hear it haunting in the night. This grand symphony. I am Mozart. (laughs) But as you do your work, people promise, record company promises you one thing. And then they ditch out on you. Another person says, I'll help you compose it. And then they steal the idea and they go start Facebook. All right. That's just a, that wasn't a, that wasn't a very logical connection. Anyway, (laughs) you get the point, right? Um, There will be both frustration and fulfillment is what the Bible is teaching us. And human work 
So what's the point of doing all this uh, frustrating work? It's giving us a glimpse of all things that will be made new when Jesus returns. I love how Tim Keller says it here. He says, there will be work in the paradise of the future, just as there was in the paradise of the past. Because God himself takes joy in his work. And in this paradise, you will be useful in the lives of others to infinite degrees of joy and satisfaction. And you will perform with all the skill that you can imagine. You have this symphony in your heart. And you die at the age of 62. From some... You trip on a pebble. Tragic death. You get robbed on the street. You, and and the, you only get 2% of your symphony out. And you look back and you're like, man, my, wife, my life was such a waste. But what the gospel assures us is, no, it wasn't a waste. Through the grace of Christ, through the blood and resurrection, through the death and resurrection of Christ, what he has secured for you is that work you've done is just a foretaste of what people will enjoy in eternity when you actually go on to fulfill the fullness of that work. One day, people will hear that symphony. And there will be no arthritis to slow you down from composing it and performing it. You know, uh, in Keller's book, he talks about two composers, uh, Salieri and Mozart. And he says Salieri had all the aristocratic, like, access and favor, and he had all the money and social status. But then when, and, but when he heard Mozart, who was in poverty and just wasn't making it, couldn't get any breaks, he heard something that he knew he didn't have. And he wanted what Mozart had. Even though he had all the status, all the money, he wanted what Mozart had. Because Mozart had the gift, the symphony in him. But unfortunately, Mozart, he died in poverty. And, you know, that we may be tempted with those types of envy and dynamics in our, in our, in our life on this earth. But as Christians, no matter what our experience of work, we have a deep consolation to work with all our heart onto God and to never be ultimately disillusioned by the frustration we find in work from this fallen world. Why? Because we know that in the gospel, our work is not the final word. We know that in Christ, there will be fullness of joy. Incredible fulfillment. And so let us live our lives 
moving in a momentum toward that glory. Amen? How sad is it if we fall into the trap of cynicism after five years of working hard? And we go, man, let this world just go to waste. Let this company just, let me just get my paycheck. And you just cop out. What is your life pointing to? Is it pointing to a day when Jesus will make all things new? Or are you simply reflecting the effects of sin? As Christians, we ought to reflect not just the effects of sin, but the effects of the death and resurrection of our Lord. Yes, we deal with the effects of sin on work. But through the death and resurrection of our Lord, we're able to reflect his glory in far more beautiful ways than man without Christ. Uh, I think um, there's a joy to the world uh, lyrics that Keller points out in this in this chapter. I thought it was fitting because it's Christmas this week. Uh, and anyone know the uh, the verse that goes, "No more let sin or sorrow grow." Hey, can you grab my book right there? So uh, Keller points out that each Christmas we sing these lyrics without really knowing what we are chanting. So I thought we could sing it as the close of this song. It says, no, no more lesson. No more let sin or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. You know, Jesus came into this world. To undo the effects of sin for the remnant of his people. And so indeed there is strong effects of sin on work. But there is a resurrection power by the Holy Spirit. That causes us to have great hope. But not overly optimistic or naive. But have great hope. That we reflect his glory. Until he comes and makes all things new. Amen? You guys feel me on my theology? All right? I'm trying to land you at a good, balanced theology. Everyone good now? I'm going to close up this sermon series. It's over now. Okay, so go do your work. Don't be disillusioned. Go do it with all your heart. Even if people backstab you, go do it still. Be optimistic. Be hopeful. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for every person in this room. Students, graduates, young adults, mothers, fathers, different stages of life, even as Joe's parents are here visiting. There's people in here in this room that different stages of life. And God, one, number one, we are thankful that you have called us to do work. You could have snapped your finger and built cities of millions. But instead, you put a man and woman in a garden and told them to 
do work and tend to it. We thank you for the gift of work. And we pray that we would have a healthy perspective through all the different assignments you give to your people. And Father, there is, there are dreams and aspirations and visions in our hearts. We want to see a better society. We want to see better technology helping people. We want to see beautiful hotel resorts like the world has never seen before. We want to build churches that are powerful and dynamic and strong in leadership. We want to write grand symphonies, not just worship music, but jazz music, classical music, bossa nova. God, we want, we have these aspirations in our hearts. We're also humbled by the effects that we see of sin. And we pray that, Lord, as a body of Christ, we will always approach our work with this balanced perspective. That the kingdom is here, but his kingdom has also not come, not yet. Kingdom is here, but the kingdom is still on its way. And I just pray that no matter what challenges and backstabbing and frustration we find in work we'll still do it onto you with all our heart and we just pray that in this room that by your grace and favor that people will be lifted up out of their own self mistakes and self inflicted authority that people will be lifted up out of the betrayal of others that slow down their lives from going on through the work they wanted to do that you will lift them up by your grace. There, there will be no victim mentality among God's people. For through Christ we can conquer all. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us.